I just hopped out of the shower and I was doing my post shower routine when I realized that it's eerily quiet in my home. Mashallah, tabakallah, no drinks, um, no hasid. And so I looked around and I realized that my little brother's not here. And so I'm like mid hair scrunch. I pull out my mic, I pull out my laptop and I'm like, let me get to recording because this is a rare moment and I want to make the most out of it. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Venting Sesh. I'm your host, Omhani Suger. Thank you for tuning in on the second and final part of my short Black History Month series. Last time, we considered the importance of Black History Month, we defined cultural appropriation, and we discussed the appropriation of Black hairstyles. This session will continue that discussion by applying it to language and physical features. We've got a lot to get into this week, so without further ado, please welcome racism! Nah, I'm joking. Racism isn't welcome here, so let's talk bad about him behind his back. We're now switching gears from the topic of cultural appropriation in terms of hair to cultural appropriation in terms of language. Recently, there's been an increasing conversation amongst the youth about African American Vernacular English, AAVE, or the Black Scent. This so-called Black Scent has been in our collective consciousness forever, although we never called it those things. You may have heard of Black people being told to, quote, speak properly in academic settings, or being called whitewashed when they speak in ways that are compliant with the English taught in schools. But what are people referring to when they say, you sound black, or you sound white? Because last I checked, colors don't sound like anything, unless you have synesthesia. <laughs> what people mean when they make these claims is that black communities in America practice a particular dialect of the English language, since this dialect is commonly spoken amongst and was arguably created by black people, it's become associated with them. Hence the phrase, you sound black, which is really just, you're speaking in a language that has been created and is used by many black people in this country. Before I get into why using AAVE is a form of cultural appropriation, I wanna set the stage with, you guessed it, some history. AAVE, or AAL, which is African American Language, or AAV, which is African American English, obviously started here, in North America. But there's some controversy surrounding its origins. Anglicists, or Anglicists, I really don't know, I didn't Google it and I don't care to know, um, claim that AAVE found its influence from the British Isles and was brought to America by white indentured servants and English settlers. Creolists claim that AAVE has obvious West African influence and was once a Creole language that was decreolized and restructured over time. Basically, you had the English settlers who were like, it's mine. And then you had the West African immigrants who were like, no, it's mine. And now people who study languages are like, maybe it belongs to you both? Because nothing is ever black or white, and there's no such thing as a straightforward answer these days. <laughs> but I have to agree. 
language in general is super complex, and so it makes sense that AAVE is an amalgamation of various cultural influences. Of course, I'm more partial to it originating amongst Black communities. Something about those English settlers trying to claim that they started AAVE just rubs me the wrong way. But hey, I'm not a linguist, so maybe white indentured servants did have a big say. Or maybe the discipline of linguistics is heavily populated by white academics who like to reframe the narrative by forcing their way into everything. But I digress. Whatever the origins of AAVE are, one thing's for sure, it is a dialect that saw a massive development with the great migration of freed slaves in the 1900s. For those of you who don't know much about history, Stream Wonderful World by Sam Cooke, this was a time when Black people moved up north, where racists were only marginally less terrible. As Black folk began to distance themselves from white people and develop their own communities, speaking styles diverged, and AAVE became a distinct extension of the English language. I won't get into the grammar of it all. I've already probably bored you enough with history, but there is a great TED Talk by Morgan Gill on the video sharing platform I frequent. I will say, however, that AAVE has been popularized by Black artists in the genres of pop and hip-hop, and because said genres are so ubiquitous, AAVE is becoming more commonly used by non-Black people. But why is this problematic? It's just an accent like any other. We imitate British people all the time, and AAVE is cool. Rappers use it, so why shouldn't I? <sighs> it's time that you learn, dear listener, that nothing exists in a vacuum. Remember the comment I made earlier about black kids being told to speak properly in school or having their racial identity questioned when they comply? Yeah, that's because of racism, babe. Like I said in my last episode, historically, anything and everything that was characteristic of black folk was seen as inferior. Language is no exception. But, um, honey, you still haven't told me why I shouldn't use A-A-V-E. Oh my god, relax. I'm getting there. Since you're so full of questions, I'm gonna pose one of my own. In what instances do non-black people use A-A-V-E? Think about it. Take your time. Talk it over with a friend. Is it when they're trying to seem unfuckwithable, as T. Noir calls it? Is it when they're attempting to express hostility? Maybe non-black creators use a black scent when they're role-playing someone of lesser intelligence. In all cases, AAVE, and thereby blackness, is presented as inferior. Improper English. Why not just English? When non-black creators use AAVE on TikTok, or YouTube, or whatever else, they're making jokes, merely poking fun. But when Black creators use it, they're ratchet, uneducated, inarticulate. What's meant to be a reclamation of heritage and culture is now being appropriated by people who can never fully understand the hurt that comes with having your identity continuously mocked and subordinated. Black creators have their intelligence brought into question, so imagine 
What a kick in the nuts it is for non-Black creators to use AAVE to gain popularity and thus monetization. The Black influential figure who comes to mind in discussions of the English language is Langston Hughes. I learned about Hughes in a Modernism's elective I took in second year. Modernism is just a movement in art and literature, like the Renaissance or Impressionism. Although Hughes wrote during the Modernist period, his work was often excluded from the Modernist canon. The main reason for this was that Hughes used the vernacular as opposed to fancy pants words and references, like a lot of his colleagues. While other authors were concerned with the politically charged notion of literary accessibility, i.e. being pretentious pricks, Hughes wanted his work to be more accessible to his audience. But don't be fooled. Despite Hughes' simplistic style, we still spent hours discussing his working class. An open letter to Hughes. Dear Langston, your work and the work of your literary peers made it impossible for me to get an A in my English elective. Your texts and the texts of your peers made it incredibly difficult for me to get a B plus in that class. I will take responsibility for even signing up for a second year English elective that ran for six grueling, painful months. But you didn't have to be so smart and complicated. Despite my love-hate relationship with poetry and modernist texts because of that agonizing course, I admire all that you've done for the advancement of literature. I admire that you set the stage for countless Black intellectuals to permeate literary spaces and offer us POC a more diverse perspective within literature. So thank you. But you also made me cry. Sincerely, I'm Hanny. We approach our final application of cultural appropriation to physical features. We kind of started this discussion when I spoke about hair, but I wanted to talk about that separately because of all its rich history. In this section, I'll be focusing on the appropriation of physiques, complexions, and facial features common amongst Black women. You may have heard of the term Black fishing, coined by Juana Thompson. Thompson came up with this word when she observed the new trend, if I could call it that, of Instagram influencers changing their appearances to resemble Black women. Before I continue, I do want to say that not all Black people look alike, and a lot of the features that I'll be mentioning are common to non-Black women as well. For example, full lips, curvy silhouettes, tan and dark skin. These are often characteristics of Black women, but they also describe a lot of women of color, and not all Black women have these things. So it's complicated. Regardless, it's interesting to see how famous white women like the Kardashians, I know I'm obsessed with them, and the face of black fishing, Emma Hallberg, change their appearances with lip filler, plastic surgery, bronzer, and self-tanning. Kim Foster talks about how this affinity for common characteristics of black and women of color is because blackness is cool. Being a POC is different. It's edgy and innovative. Black creatives have contributed immensely to popular culture. In fact, I think it's fair to say that they invented it. 
This complicates the already contentious discussion of cultural appropriation because if Black folk create youth culture, then youth of all races will emulate their traits. And so it's hard to say that young people are culturally appropriating when they wear certain braided hairstyles or use a black scent or get long acrylic nails and lip filler. But I believe that the problem lies in the fact that although black youth popularize the aforementioned, they still aren't reaping the benefits of participating in these trends. When you think of full lips, who's the first person that comes to mind? Is it the Black folks who naturally have this trait? Or is it people like Kylie Jenner, a white woman who created a billion dollar business selling lip products? What about when you think about curvy body types? Is it Kim Kardashian who enters your head? Black folk will create trends and the credit will go to the white folk who appropriate them. It's not just cultural appropriation, it's cultural colonization. We're only beginning to get real representation of Black women in the media, but so much of the spaces meant for BIPOC are still permeated with what Foster calls exotic white people. Instead of recruiting actual Black women, especially those with dark skin, to diversify a brand's image, something businesses are trying to do to appeal to a wider consumership, marketing teams will hire racially ambiguous white women <laughs> the irony is just, it goes over their heads, I guess. There's a substitution in representation where white bodies stand in for black ones. Something all too reminiscent of the minstrel shows that mocked black communities by having white people exaggerate their features to create a grotesque caricature. And I'm not really trying to compare blackfishing to minstrel shows because I realize that those are two very different very complex things and the weight of them varies drastically. But I do think it's interesting to see how white people are still cosplaying as black people, if I could call it that. Like it's it's interesting to see how history repeats itself, right? We saw it last time when I was talking about American bandstand and TikTok dances, and we're seeing it again today where you see white women dressing up as black women, essentially and getting all the money and benefits of doing so when Black women are not. There was a time when Black women's bodies were gawked at and mocked. In the early 1800s, Sartre G. Bartman was kidnapped from South Africa, enslaved, and then purchased as a part of a circus. Due to her unconventional looks, Sartre was literally manipulated into joining a freak show and was paraded around for people to gape and laugh at. So imagine what a punch in the throat it is for Black women's bodies to be emulated and once again profited off of by white women who don't naturally have that body type. The Black influential figure for this category is none other than Henrietta Lacks. If you don't know about this lovely woman, here's a brief history. Grâce à Wikipedia, Henrietta Lacks, whose maiden name was Pleasant, I'm just kidding, <laughs> I'm not going to put you through that treachery again. Lacks was born in 1920 and unfortunately died to cancer when she was only 31. Researchers, but I prefer to call them disrespectful thieves, 
but found that lax cancerous cell line reproduced indefinitely under specific conditions, something that healthy cells can't do. So some guy got his lab assistant to go to Henrietta's body to harvest some more of her cells. And they used these immortal cells to conduct various studies and trials. Lax and her family were never consulted, their permission was never granted, and they were never compensated. It wasn't until recently that the Lax family was even given some control over who has access to their ancestors' DNA sequence because they're publishing that shit and what the HeLa cells are used for. HeLa cells being the cells that the lab assistant extracted from Henrietta's body, her, her corpse. Someone went to the morgue and extracted someone's cells so that they could conduct research on it. I just, I just want to articulate that this is what's happening because it just, like, what the fuck is going on? Are we on an alternate timeline? Like, is this a, is this a simulation? Because what the fuck? <sighs> I don't even know what to say. Uh, when you first hear this story, the relationship might be a little unclear. What does Henrietta Lacks's cancer cells have to do with Kim Kardashian's butt shots and Kylie Jenner's lip injections? The answer is, drumroll please, the appropriation of black bodies. But what do I mean by this? White folk have a history of claiming ownership of black people's bodies. This started off with slavery, turned into what happened to Henrietta, and I'm sure plenty of other women like her, and evolved into what we call blackfishing today. For centuries, white people have felt entitled to black people's hair, their language, and their physiques. It's one of the reasons why casually touching black women's hair is such a common trope. One that I never really understood, like, what business do you have getting up in another person's physical space and touching their hair? Like, it, make it make sense, but I digress. The appropriation of black bodies has removed black people from the narrative, reducing them to mere props for the benefit of the white majority. Okay, full transparency. I consider myself an ally, and I do what I can to support my black brothers and sisters. And I'm hesitant to even say that because it feels super self-righteous, but I do just want to establish my solidarity before I make my next point, because it's incredibly important to me and I feel like standing up for my fellow marginalized communities is a big part of my identity. Despite all that, I really debated doing these last couple episodes because I was worried that I would be overstepping or that I would misspeak or that I would be overshadowing the voices of Black people who may want to speak about their individual experiences. And I think that may be a common reservation amongst allies when it comes to discussing issues that concern the Black community. We become afraid that we'll get cancelled, or chastised, or called out for having no idea what we're talking about. Because I'm not a member of the Black community, and so I thought, no, I'm not Black, so I shouldn't be talking about injustices that concern Black people. But in having this inner dialogue, I realized that my fear of potentially taking the spotlight away from Black people who are discussing such issues is actually racist and incredibly self-serving. 
Not only was I hesitant for my own self-preservation, my train of thought implied that only Black people should speak about issues that concern them. Only Black people should be advocating for their human rights. Only Black people can fight against their oppression. I was putting the responsibility of acquiring fair and equitable treatment on the very people who are being unfairly and inequitably treated. And that's nonsense. Black people are spearheads in the fight for their rights, and there's no doubting that. But it's incredibly important for people who identify as allies to back up those efforts and use our own platforms and influences to speak up against anti-Black racism. So I thankfully talked myself out of that unhelpful headspace and got to researching. Of course, I might have said something that's wrong or ill-informed because as I've been highlighting in each of my episodes thus far, I'm not an expert. I'm not Black. I'm not a student of African-American studies, not that that would enable one to speak to a Black experience if they're not Black. And that's not what I'm trying to do in this episode. I'm not trying to say, this is what it's like to be a Black person in America, because I don't know what it's like, at least not on a personal level. But I do want to shed light on some of the things that Black people experience, or rather, some Black people experience, because remember, just like Indigenous peoples aren't a monolith, neither are Black people. Speaking of which, it's interesting because I had no reservations when approaching my Land Back episode. None. But when it came to this two-part series, I had to ask, why? Like, why was I so hesitant and afraid? And it's because... racism. Because as much as I like to think that I'm so socially aware and I always speak against injustice, that doesn't change the fact that we live in a society <laughs> and I'm socialized in a world which continues to discriminate against Black folk. And I'm not just talking about the West, quote-unquote. I'm also talking about the Muslim community, which, ugh, we hate to talk about it, but it's there. And I think more and more Muslims are becoming privy to the racism in our communities. But yeah, like in the Arab community, the North African community of which I'm a part, there's a lot of anti-Black racism and colorism, which is a whole other discussion to be had. And it sneaks up on you too, like you wouldn't think that the people you surround yourself with are racist, but I've sat at many a family gathering and just witnessed microaggression after microaggression and stereotypes of people of different races. And you begin to internalize that shit. So our job as allies is to work to unlearn some of those thought patterns. And I hope these last couple episodes aided you in doing so. If you found this episode in any way helpful, please consider sharing it with a friend. I just want to reach as many people as I possibly can so I can make the most impact. I'm signing off this session, but before I leave, I'd just like to remind you that things will get better. So stay optimistic. Just don't be complicit. Until next time.